0: I go from stealing hundred dollars a day to two hundred dollars a day to three hundred dollars a day. To, I think to my high point, like between four and five hundred dollars a day in drugs. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Super More Bros Podcast, hosted by your favorite brother duo.
1: I'm Mitch, and I'm Matt. Where each week we bring you a dope guest or equip you with the skills to live life at the highest level.
2: Hey, what's going on? It's Matt. Before we dive into this episode, just wanted to ask a quick favor. If you could just go drop us a review, it'll take 30 seconds and it'll mean the world to us. It'll help us grow and help as many people as possible. All right, now let's dive into this one. What is up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Super Bros Podcast. I hope you guys are absolutely on fire this Monday morning because we got a special guest today who has an absolutely... Unreal story that I guarantee you've never heard anything like this story. I mean, from 24 being a drug addict to now absolutely jacked, I believe at 29, and we are about to dive into just this entire story. So, Alex, what's up, bro? Welcome to the podcast, man.
0: Matt, Mitch, it is an absolute pleasure to be here with you guys.
1: Yeah, thank you for coming on, man. Thank you for spending the time. So, I mean, let's just get right to it, dude. So, we're not dancing around it, stealing your thunder. Like, let's just go back to what was probably rock bottom for you. I mean, you're at 24. Um, the quote I think you used in one of your tweets was, you were doing your best job to ruin your life. Uh, let's just go through that that story, that time in your life. You know, what happened, man?
0: The funny thing about 24 for me is, like, it started out the year, like, January when I was 24. Um, this is, like... 2014, it was like the best year of my life. Um, I was just getting high as hell all the time. And I had like a personal bank to do that. Um, I didn't really expect myself to ever become a drug addict. And I'm sure we'll get into that, like how that happened. But at that time period, I was a heroin addict. I was working as a manager in a bar restaurant. And uh, essentially what I was doing, I ran out of money. So I was just stealing money to feed my drug addiction. And I thought i had it all caked out no one knew i was living a great life i was spending money that wasn't even mine and uh, a few months later and 2014 you know is when my boss found out kind of what was going on because i was stealing a lot of money because anybody who knows anything about drug addiction knows that you know you don't stay at one spot your tolerance keeps growing and that's what mine was doing so i go from stealing a hundred dollars a day to two hundred dollars a day to three hundred dollars a day i think to my high point like between four and $500 a day in drugs. And that just kept building and building. So, you know, the spiral downward was absolutely insane because a lot of people, when I I tell this story to them, they're like, well, didn't you feel bad about that? And honestly, every time I stole money, like there was that thought, that initial thought, like I should not be doing this. But that always got washed away by, I don't want to feel like shit. So I'm going to steal this money so I can get high. So if there's a lot of nuance, of course, in the drug, dis, uh, drug conversation, but like, it's just insane, like where my life went and I had never intended it to go there. It's just a very slippery slope. And I got caught up in the wind and I freaking fell down for it.
1: Man. So, so let's go, let's rewind then back, you know, previous to that, you said, you know, how did you fall into <clears throat> that drug addiction to begin with? You know, how did it, start just for people who maybe haven't experienced that in their own life or, um, you know, want to understand how it got there. Maybe they can help some other people in, in their family or friends or whatnot. So could you just share the journey leading up to that point as well?
0: Yeah, of course. I've always been a person, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. You know, I think we were like, I was 15 the first time I drank beer. I remember we had a friend whose brother was like 22. So he bought us a case of Coors Light between five of us. We went camp and we all got drunk. We had a great time. And it was wonderful. You know what I mean? So that was like our weekend thing. The boys and I would go camping. We'd get a case of Coors Light and we'd drink some beers. We had fun. Then weed came into the discussion. We'd start smoking weed now and then. And it was never a thing that we did every day. You know, we were just the kids on the weekend. Like, let's have a good time. And that's what We did. The unfortunate part about that for me was I was always that kid who liked to do a little bit more. So I was always the kid at the party just getting a little bit drunker than everybody else. I was a kid who's smoking a little bit more weed than everybody else. And something else that I noticed as well is I started throughout my high school years, I started extending that time. So no longer was I just the kid with the fellas on the weekends getting drunk and high. I started to smoke more weed during the week and... I never really thought anything of it because I feel like at the time period, then this is like the, the mid 2000, like 08 or something. And like uh, weed was still illegal. And I remember my dad is like, you're smoking weed. And the big thing was to tell him, like, this is medicine. This is all right. And I still think it is in, in a point. But the point I want to illustrate is I kept doing more because my attitude was like, I need to do more. And that got me in a lot of trouble growing up. You know, I have, (laughs) I just looked at it the other day because I got five underages before I was 21. Just wrong place, wrong time. I was never a bad kid. I just liked to drink and I did it more and more and more. So I kind of spiraled around and I lost some jaws because of this as well, because it wasn't because I was drunk at work, it's because I wouldn't go to work because I wanted to party instead. So at 21, I finally found a really good job for me, and that was bartending. Of course, I love beer, and I love to talk to people. So it was like the two worlds converged. And I also found out that I happened to be very good at it. So I was really good at this job, and it was around the people that I already liked to hang out with. So me, I was working in the bar restaurant that I ended up stealing from. There was a cook there, and anybody who's worked in a restaurant industry knows that a majority of the people who work in restaurants smoke weed, drink alcohol, and they do it a lot. And our favorite thing to do after work was we would go down to my apartment after work. We would bring a six-pack. We'd smoke a blunt, and we did this for months, and I remember this one day vividly. He came down to my house. He's like, hey, I have something else as well. I'm like, well, what is that? He's like, I have this oxycodone. I knew nothing about any pharmaceuticals, any drugs. The only thing that I ever really did was I smoked weed and I drank beer. He brought this pill down as well. And he's like, do you care if I smoke it in your house? And I'm like, nah, man, I don't give a shit what you do. So he started doing it and being the nice friend that he was, he would offer me some. And I'm like, well, what's it do? You know, I'm asking questions. I'm inquisitive. I don't know what this is. He says, it's going to get you high, better than weed. I'm like, Whoops, it's, it's better sold. So I smoked that pill with him that night and it was better, you know, and I really enjoyed it. Again, I didn't think anything of this, this slippery slope that it could take me on. So just like the weed and the the alcohol did to me when I was younger, I started smoking these pills with him. So we started doing this. This is this this added into our ritual. So not only would we get a six pack after work and get a blunt, I'd be like, "Yo, can you get another oxy? And I, again, I thought nothing of it. Like we're just rewinding after work. We're just calming down. We're deloading the stress. And again, I introduced this pill to one of my best friends who would come home from college at the time. And uh, it started turning into our thing that him and I would do when he'd come home from college on the weekends. And just like my youth... I started extending that time. So I was no longer doing that just on the weekends. I started to do it during the weekdays. I started doing it three days a week, four days a week, five days a week, six days a week. I remember very vividly there's a day, uh, probably about six to eight months into doing these pills quite often during the week. I didn't do it for about over 24 hours. And I remember I was at work and I just felt like garbage. I felt horrible. I had a headache. I felt like I had the flu. I had a runny nose. I was really irritable. Honestly, I thought I was just sick. I was so naive at this time. I texted my buddy who introduced me to these. And I was like, hey, man, I don't feel very good. And I think if I smoke one of these pills, I will feel better. Not knowing that I was going through withdrawal at the time. I had no idea what was going on. And he texted me back and he's like, well, I can't get those anymore. The person doesn't have them, but I have something else. You may like this. I was like, okay. I left work. I met up with him. The something else that he had was heroin. And initially when he said, this is what I have, like, I, I feel like heroin is just a really strong word. And you're like, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Like I'm a, I'm a classy in quotation marks, uh, a classy drug user. I'm only using pharmaceuticals. And he's like, all right. And that no changed from a yes. in probably about 10 seconds. Cause I thought about, it. I'm like, maybe this will make me feel better. So I did it and it did make me feel better and that started something that was literally out if i could rewind to that moment because that moment is the moment that everything went downhill because everything expedited from there because the heroin was cheaper the heroin was easier to get um and it just totally blew up from there because i was so naive to not realize like hey this is the beginning stages of addiction i thought i was having a good time so it was that is what got me to the point um of losing my job.
1: Wow. That's, that's wild story, man. And it's crazy how, like you said, it's just a slippery slope, but it's just one little decision after another that you think, Oh, this won't hurt. This won't hurt. You know, the, the consequences won't come for me, you know, and just, you keep pushing that boundary a little further, a little further, a little further. So I'm curious, was it just that you were hanging around the wrong people? I mean, Obviously you were, but was it just like drugs were prevalent in the town where you grew up? You know, did your family do drugs? Like, how did you, you know, get in touch with these people? Like, what did that look like?
0: No, none of my family did drugs and how I got in touch with them. Like the guy who introduced me to the drugs itself, he was a cook in the restaurant that I worked at. And as I've said, you know, him and I would leave work and we would smoke weed and drink beer after work. You know, the funny thing is like none of my close friends... Like at that time, um, I still had a really strong friend group. So including me, there was five of us and we all had our separate things going on. But when we came back to town, we were all together. Funny thing is none of them did drugs minus the one guy who came home from college. He would recreationally do them with me. He is what I guess some people would call a weekend warrior. One of those guys who is able to do (laughs) drugs on the weekend, go back to Monday as a normal person. I always envied him for that. And he's still that way so like he didn't he never let it overtake him whereas me like i'm the one who let it take over my life i took it to a thousand these are like the trademark qualities of a drug addict is somebody who has no uh throttle he just goes zero to a hundred and that's how i was i found something that i really really enjoyed and i took that to the limit and i didn't know how to stop so I guess in part, yes, it was getting surrounded with the wrong type of people because it was just one person. But from him, I started getting introduced to other people. The funny thing about that, and I've talked about this before is that I kept those, the, the lives that I had separate. So I had my friends that I grew up with who didn't Mm. do drugs. And now I had my friends who did do drugs and I never meshed those people together. They never knew that each other existed because anybody who's been in drug addiction knows that we're, we're elusive people, uh, reclusive rather people we don't really go out and say like uh, we do drugs in this like it's mostly people just hide in houses doing drugs together and you don't get introduced to these people unless you know the person that gets you the introduction and that's how I got the introduction and of course as things went on like I had to start buying drugs from different people and I got introduced to these people so now I have a whole new friend group over here is doing something completely different again so it's funny because Fast forward a little bit. My one friend who I started doing the uh, pills with on the weekend and he would go back to college, he was actually going to school to be a nurse. He's a very bright individual and he could see that things were starting to get a little out of control with me um, because he realized that he'd leave for school on Sunday and I wouldn't stop doing these pills. He would come home on the weekends. and I remember I'd always try to hide away from him. Like I didn't want to really hang out with him because he was the guy who was calling me out on my shit. He was the guy who I couldn't say, no, I'm not high because he came up to me. He's like, Cherry. That's what they call me, Cherry. I see your pupils. They're dilated. You're high as shit. And I'm like, shit, man. I am high, man. And like, he called me out on it. He'd make me feel some type of way. And I needed that, but I didn't want that because I was feeling so good. I'm like, dude. And I think back to the time that I was going through that withdrawal that I had no idea I was going through. And I'm like, I don't want to feel like that again. I do not want to feel like garbage again. So I'm just going to keep continually doing this, not thinking about the future. I'm like, is this sustainable? Can I do this for forever? Probably not. But that, again, that's not a thought that's going in my mind. The The, the mindset I had was so short timed because I was like, all I care about is how I'm getting my next fix. That's all I care about. That's it.
1: So how did you um, attach your personality of wanting to take everything to the next level? You want to do more. You want to, you know, take it just notch, just a notch up from where you are every single time. How did you eventually um, attach that personality to positive things instead of to um, drugs like it was previously?
0: Well, I went to jail. And, and that was like the biggest thing that literally pushed me somewhere else. I've never been to jail in my life. So I was like, how old was I? 26, 27 when I went to jail. And I even went a month early too for circumstances that were stupid on my part. But anyway, so actually I went to jail for eight months, never been to jail before. I only went to County, um, Despite what people see on movies, jail ain't shit, especially at the county level. I'm in there with a bunch of people who were <laughs> there for DUIs and not paying child support. And actually, at the time that I was in jail, they just did a big meth bus. So there was 35 individuals there who were part of a meth sting operation. So actually, jail was a little interesting for me. The thing I didn't like about jail was... Everything about it. Um, they take away your freedom. They strip that away from you. From the moment you walk in the door, they tell you to take your clothes off, squat and cough. You like they degrade. It's not that they uh, they don't degrade you like verbally, but the process itself is degrading. And you can't go anywhere without being supervised. You can't take a shit without somebody seeing. You have no controls on the shower. Like this, these little things that I took for granted in the real world. I don't have anymore. I have no privacy and I hated every part of it. And I'm not even ashamed to say, I think like probably the first 30 to 60 days, I cried almost every night when I went to bed because I was just like, I lost everything. I lost freedom. I went from being, owning my own home to having all this money, to having status in my community because I was a bartender that everybody knew. Like I could go into any store in my area and I could know everybody in there and they all say hi to me. I went from having that high level, community aspect to having nothing to being on the front page of the paper, to being on the news, to being on the radio, like everybody knew what I did. And it was just, I, I was at zero. I was at ground zero. So like that whole process right there, I was so happy after eight months to get out of jail and go to rehab that I was almost ready and willing to accept anything else than that reality that I was in for eight months. I was like, there's, I was like, I know one thing for sure. I never, ever, ever want to be in that position again where I'm in jail because it's the worst position ever. And not only that is the type of individuals who are in jail. The funny thing that I noticed about people in jail was that a majority of them are frequent flyers. A majority of them know the guards by name and the guards know them by name. A majority of them have stayed in jail with the same people who have been in there. They're like, oh, what time is this for you? So, and this is perplexing Mm. for me as somebody who's like, hold on, you guys have been here multiple times. Like, this is, this is insane to me, man. Like, how can you keep doing this? And even more so, how can you be so all right with it? I don't understand that. And it's just not for me. I, so that was the biggest catalyst of saying, like, I don't know what the hell I want out of life, but I know this, I don't want that past that I had ever again, because man, it tore me up it was a hard time in life, but I'm thankful for it because again, like you can't know the really good in life without knowing the really bad. I found my really bad. Every, everything since then, like these little things that would derail most people in life, like these little inconveniences, they don't even affect me. Cause I'm like, I've been low, man. I've been low. Do you think mm. I care about this? No, it doesn't mean yeah. shit.
2: That's an incredible point, dude. <clears throat> Seriously. I mean, there's so many people who make a mountain out of a molehill with their problems, and even on like our last podcast, like just with with certain people in certain situations, like they're, they'll talk about the opinions of other people, how that's such a big deal in your life, and then we talk to a guy like you, and you're like, you think that I'm fucking worried about that? Like I've been in this spot, this rock bottom spot. Like your problems are not real problems, and it's just so it's just so crazy that people will make a mountain out of a molehill of their problems. And I want people, if you're listening to this, like hear Alex's story, hear the struggle that he's been through and reflect on the things that you stress and worry about. Like, are your problems actually fucking problems? Are you worried about the opinion of fucking John from high school, who is holding you back from doing what you want to do with your life? Like, Again, is that your, really your biggest fucking struggle in life? You have a lot of reflecting to do, and you got a lot of fucking action to take. But to dive back into your story, dude, how did you – because you are talking about a guy who has an extremely addictive personality. Mm-hmm. And obviously, a negative environment played a role in you becoming mm-hmm. the person that you were at that time. And you just said you were in the worst environment possible of guys who were recurring offenders in jail – They're back in there. They're regulars. And that's the environment you're in. You get out of that. Did you have a community of people, family who surrounded you with a good environment? Or how did you start taking steps to becoming the better person once you got out of jail?
0: So I got out of jail and I went to rehab. I I was court ordered to go to because the reason I was in jail and court ordered, obviously, is because I stole from my job. The owner pressed charges as he should didn't even fight him i i pled guilty because i told him i would like i i I owed him that much he did me he did me a lot of favors in life and he didn't deserve what i did to him and um but anyway so i was court ordered to go to rehab for 90 days after the fact and the rehab was great it was really really good i met a lot of great individuals i didn't know anything about addiction really even during addiction i knew nothing so going to rehab was my first like introduction to like how do you get clean from this and um I will say the rehab itself, I didn't learn shit from, but the people in the rehab, I learned everything from Um, the people I stayed with long term, um, my roommate, especially great guy. And uh, he he was actually in his 10th rehab. We actually called him the Frankenstein of rehabs because he was so smart. He knew everything that you needed to do, but he just couldn't apply it to his own life. And he taught me so much. And he's always told me this one thing. He's like, Alex, like you, he, he's seen something in me that I didn't see. He's like, I can see that you're a high performer. Like you are a high level guy. And he always told me this one thing. And I think about it all the time when I'm down, he's like, the cream always rises to the top. Sometimes it takes a little longer, but the cream always rises to the top. And I was like, okay, Todd, whatever you say, brother, but learning from those individuals in there, kind of what I have and kind of what I had to do. I was like, this is a great catalyst. My family at the time was really skeptical of me, and as they should have been. I stole from every single one of them. Um, I had three sisters, stole from every one of those. I stole thousands from my dad. I stole from my mom anybody close to me, they got it. I I would steal their stuff. I would pawn it. I would steal money from them. I stole checks, like anything I could. So they had every single right to be skeptical. Um, One thing I'm grateful for is they talked to me throughout my whole jail stay and my whole rehab stay. Granted, the conversations weren't all fine and dandy and all warm and cuddly, you know, like they're skeptical. They weren't happy. Um, I had tried to get clean on my own two or three times prior to going to jail and, that didn't end very well. It would always blow up in my face. So of course they had a reason to be skeptical. When I got out of rehab, um, I had to stay with a friend for a little bit because my dad just was not willing to put me into his home. Do not blame him there. Again, I like, right before I went to jail, I had stole a few thousand dollars from him right before Christmas at that he didn't deserve that. So he was skeptical, but within three months of being out, um, I got involved in narcotics anonymous. Um, it was probably the best thing I could have ever did. And again, just like rehab, it's like, it's not the program of Narcotics Anonymous that did anything for me personally. I know it does stuff for other people. Me personally did not care for the program, but what I did care for were the people in the program because they were a group of people that I connected with and that I could do stuff with and that I could talk to. Um, a majority of my friends were still drinking and smoking weed, which was fine. But at the to- at that point in my life is not something I could have did because I was in a slippery slope. If I would have started doing that, I would have slid down. So I got introduced with all these new people who were clean and sober, living a different style of life. And like we were doing stuff. We were going camping. We were going kayak. And we were going hiking. We were going to basketball games. Mm. Like we were doing all these things together. And we were doing it clean. And I'm like, wow, I never in a million years could have imagined I could have did any of these things without being higher drunk. Never could have imagined it. So they really helped me lay the foundation to my life because without that time period, without those people, I wouldn't have been able, I wouldn't be sitting here today in the person that I am. I'd probably be either a dead or b still doing drugs or C in jail. Like those are the three things without them laying that foundation. it, It just wouldn't have worked in my life. It just would not have panned out. I needed other people. The, the, the biggest mistake I ever thought in my life is I was always a loner and not a loner because I've always had a lot, a lot of friends. But the problem is, is like, I always thought that I could do everything on my own. I always prided myself on being this person who didn't need help in any aspect of my life and come to find out that was the stupidest mindset I could have ever had because I, I think it came down to, I always wanted to take all the credit for what I was doing. It was like this thing, mm-hmm. this internal people-pleasing thing. Like I wanted, the, I wanted people to like me and I wanted them to know that I was worthy. So I wanted them to know that I did it on my own. And the problem with that, again, is like there's a power in numbers. There is nothing wrong with saying I need help. It is the most humbling experience of your life and you open yourself up to learning something. So I'm thankful that I opened myself up to that because, again, without all those individuals, like the person you see here today was built by hundreds of people. Everybody had a hand in this from people who gave me rides to places to people who helped me buy some food when I didn't have any money to people who just talked to me at two, three in the morning when I was having a really shit freaking day. Like all those things combined helped me get to where I'm at today.
1: Absolutely. dude. You're, we're all a product of our environment, you know, whether it's positive or negative, we're all a product of our environment. And so um, you're just top notch example of, you know, you are who you hang around and you have to be intentional about the people who you choose to associate with, because they'll either drag you down or pull you up. Um, so you got into, um, narcotics anonymous, you got around some great people and you started making some better lifestyle decisions. Um, so how, let's kind of fill in the gap then of, uh, that time in your life to now, um, you know, being on this incredible fitness and health journey. I mean, you're looking incredible. You're super healthy. Um, you know, how did you get into or get to where you are now?
0: Yeah. So it actually started in jail. And actually even started even prior to that, you know, lifting, lifting in sports has always been something that has been a huge part of my life growing up uh, in in high school. I was a basketball player all four years, loved it. My favorite sport. We also lifted weights all the time. So like it was something that I already had, but like right after high school and like sports ended is kind of when like that ended for me, I was still playing basketball recreationally in like a summer league. But other than that, like we were going to games drunk and high all the time anyway. So it didn't really matter. So like, we didn't give a shit. We were just playing. We were just going through the motions. So I say about like 19, I like, I just stopped working out and I just got skinny fat. Like everybody thinks like you're really skinny. You're not fat. Like I was just skinny fat. I had no muscle definition. I was just like had noodle arms. Like it was just a horrible time. And then all through drug addiction, of course, like I wasn't working out or doing anything else. So that was it when I went to jail is when I was like, well, there's nothing to do here. I was actually working in the kitchen in jail, um, which is good to pass the time. But when I was out, one of the kids I was working in the kitchen with, like he was looking at a long time in jail. He had, he had robbed the bank or something. He wrote a note and slid it to the teller and like he was gonna be in there for a bit. So he started working out all the time.
1: Man.
0: And uh, he was just doing calisthenics, he's doing pushups, it was like all these crazy workouts and he was just eating he was getting commissary all he was buying is like tuna and sardines and I was like yo man and if he took off his shirt like dude was shredded he was shredded I'm like yo man I kind of want to do what you're doing because obviously you're getting some good shit like can I jump in with you so I did calisthenics with him every single day we were doing air squats push-ups planks, anything that you can think of for body weight exercises we were doing. And then even more so we were going to the kitchen and we had five gallon buckets in there. We were filling them up with freaking big five, uh, gallon cans of soup and shit. And we were, like, we were doing curls and stuff with that. So like, we were just making our own weights. So like that, like jump started me again. I'm like, I have nothing to do. So I need something to do. So I started working out every day. And I transferred that into rehab. When I went to rehab, they had a gym. It wasn't a great gym, but it was a gym. (laughs) They actually had real weights and we weren't lifting cans of soup. So I was thankful for it. So I went there and bam, I was working out all the time and I was running. I was probably working out in rehab two to three times a day, seven days a week. Like I was either walking around the track or running or I was exercising. I was doing pushups every day. I was doing sit-ups every day. And actually my counselor pulled me into her office and she's like, oh, what did she call it? I think it's cross addiction or something like that. And I was like, what are you What are you trying to tell me, Shannon? And she's like, I think you're transferring <laughs> your, your addiction to something else. And I'm like, what? And she's like, exercise. I'm like, is that a bad thing? And she's like, well, yeah, if it gets out of control. I'm like, I was doing dope and stealing $500 a day. And you're going to tell me running around this track three times a day is worse for me than doing that? And she's like, if you know, she's trying to justify it, but I was like, no, I'm not going to accept that because like, this is what, this is making me feel good. You know, knowing what I know now at the time with the endorphins and your hormones and everything, like, of course it was making me feel good. Cause I was moving my body. I was oblivious to that at the moment. So again, when I got out of rehab, um, I kind of just kept going with that. There was actually a week when I got out of rehab where I wasn't doing anything. Like I, I was just happy to be home. And of course technology was back in my life. So I was catching up on all the Facebook and the Twitter notifications and all that jazz. So like, I didn't work out for a week and I felt like garbage. I felt like garbage. And I'm like, what is going on here? I was like, I need to get back in the gym. Like I I need to keep doing what was making me feel so good these past 11 months. So that's exactly what I did. I got back in the gym. I started exercising more. I started taking care of my body Um, one thing I wish I would have started doing a little sooner is realizing how much nutrition played into my overall well-being, which is something that I learned quite quickly because, um, at the time I didn't have a lot of money. Um, as soon as I got out of rehab and I was working, I was living with a friend. I was working for a job for minimum wage, 725. I haven't worked a job for 725 in my whole entire life. And then going to work a job for minimum wage and uh, getting your first paycheck, it was like 400 bucks. I was like, what is this shit? you know? And I was like, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna do anything. So like that kind of expedited me, like getting a new job, getting, improving my quality of life so that I can improve myself. And throughout that whole time, I was just exercising a lot. I started to take care of what I was eating. I started to research more because I had time and I'm like, I want to feel the best I can possibly feel. And at that time period as well, um, they had me on six or seven, um, antidepressants, like things for mental health. And I hated these pills. I absolutely hated these pills from the moment I started taking them. So my big mission was I need to get off of these pills because they are driving me insane. Like I had no sex drive. I had no motivation. I didn't feel like myself. I just had no energy. And if I missed a day taking those pills, I felt like I was going to explode because like it was that bad. So I'm like, I need to change. So that is when I started going to Google and YouTube and Twitter and like seeing what other people were doing and trying to learn about like, how can I do this? Which really expedited me into like getting off those medications, worrying about more what I was eating, exercising more. And like all these little, like, uh, I guess things that you can consider esoteric, like it's sad that that's even has to be said, but like getting more sunlight and drinking more water and better quality water. And like. These things that really just work for other people and then I started doing them and then they work for me. So ever since then, I like to call it like a snowball because it's just rolled, it has rolled uncontrollably down this hill and gotten so big, like my health and wellness, because again, from four years ago, from where I was at to where I'm at today and doing these things, like it's insane, but I keep learning things every single day. What makes you feel better? Two days ago, I got a red light in the mail. That's something that I wanted to start doing, start sitting under the red light. So strip stripped butt naked this morning, and I sat under that red light for freaking 20 minutes. You know, like I never would have thought I would have did that four years ago, but here I am today doing that. So it's just like <laughs> learning about these little things that can make me feel better. How can I feel the absolute best that I can feel? What can I do? That is what I want to do. That's my addiction today. How can I feel better? How can I think better? How can my cognition be better? How can everything around me be better? That's all I want.
1: Hell yeah, dude. You've had a monumental journey. Um, I want to dive into one aspect that you just mentioned there, being on those antidepressant medications, because I know a lot of people who um, you know, have been prescribed those medications and have said, you know, experienced similar feelings to you of not feeling like themselves, feeling no motivation, you know, all of those things. Um, even Claire, my, my wife, she got diagnosed or not diagnosed. She got prescribed those medications in fourth grade at 10 years old. Um, So this is a just widespread issue. So can you go through the specific actions that you took to start getting off of
0: those medications? Um, I'm going to preface this with, by saying, do not do what I did. It was the absolute worst method that you ever should (laughs) have did. I, I expedited it because I have a problem with authority and sometimes people telling me what to do. So I just do the opposite of it. Um, I cold turkeyed it and that is not something i recommend to anybody because it will be the worst week or two of your life which it was for me um the problem i ran into though was insurance so at the time when i was in jail and rehab i was under state insurance so they covered everything i came to a period where i was off state insurance right after i got out of rehab they were not covering my medical bills anymore so i was on my own they wanted me to fork out i think it was going to be a few hundred dollars for all the medications that i was on this came at the same time where I didn't want to take them anymore. So I was going to have to jump through hoops to get insurance again. I'm like, well, that ain't happening. like, it's just not even a priority me right now. Like I have so many other things to worry about. Insurance is not one of them. So I was like, I'll just cold turkey. Him. So that's what I did. And I will tell you what, again, anybody who is on them, do not do this because I was so close to like suicide a few times in those two weeks because the, the, I had extreme highs, and I had extreme lows, and sometimes those lows would last hours to days, and it was horrible. It took literally probably a whole month for my hormone system to re-regulate and get back to baseline. Those first two weeks were the absolute worst. Um, the only thing I had going for me, and maybe it's just because of my circumstances, is like, one, I don't want to die, and two, I don't want to go back to jail. So like, I'm going to not just take these. I'm just going to tough it out, and that's what I did. But again, the, the medications, uh, yeah, the side effects of coming off of those were horrible, but I knew it had to be done and just everything, the way everything lined up, it just seemed like sense to just stop taking them instead of jumping through the hoops. Cause I was going to be without them anyway. And I'm like, there's no sense in not taking them for a week or two and then getting back on them. So that is the steps that I took to get off them. And, um, I learned now that I should have tapered off them. Obviously I think that's the the typical protocol they taper people off, but again, it was just how everything aligned.
1: Got it going in cold Turkey. I respect it, dude. Um, <laughs> so, so I know, I know now at this point in your life, you're speaking to people about overcoming addiction. Um, you know, what, what would you recommend if there is someone who's listening, maybe it's not a drug addiction, maybe it's addiction to somebody, something else that is you know negatively affecting their life. I mean, what steps do you recommend they take to overcome that and break the, break the habit?
0: they first have to realize what they're doing. So the best thing that I would tell people and some of the things that I've said in some of the speeches that I've given is um, get out a piece of paper, write the pros and cons of what you're doing. My my instance is heroin addiction. So I wrote down, what are the pros of doing heroin? It makes me feel good. I'm more talkative. I have I have less cares. Um, those are basically the top three that I can think of. And then what are all the downfalls? Oh, I'm a thief. Oh, I lie. I manipulate. I am reclusive. Um, I'm unhealthy. I smoke too many cigarettes. I drink too much beer. I, like the list could go on and on all the negatives. So it's like, oh, looking at that list and writing that down is going to do two things for you. One, you're going to see it in, in right to your face. Cause you wrote that And two, the mind body connection between writing is quite powerful and I really like it a lot. So you write that down and you see all these negatives and then you can start thinking and you can start seeing your mind connect these dots. Like when you write these cons, oh, I steal money. Oh, yeah. Then you start thinking about all the times you stole money. Oh, I manipulate. Oh, you can think about all the times you manipulate. So you're starting to make all those connections. So you start to make whatever you're doing not look appealing. You're like, wow, is it really this way? Because one of the biggest things about any addiction is is it takes you for a ride. It gives you tunnel vision because all you're thinking about is why it makes you feel good. That tunnel vision is just the pros. The cons are outside the tunnel vision. You can't see those. And why is that? Because your subconscious knows that that is unsavory. And that is going to make you double second guess what you're doing. Of course, your body just wants to feel better all the time. So therefore, it's going to push you towards the option that's going to make you feel good. The second thing is, is you have to come up with a plan. Like what, what are you going to do to quit this, you know, whatever steps it may be. And one thing I will stress to people is like, do not put up any gates or walls to what you won't do to get better. My wall and gate before I got better was because this was recommended to me before I even went to jail. Hey, Alex, you should check out Narcotics Anonymous or you should go to Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation or you should go and talk to this counselor. And I said, hell no to all three of those. And why was that? Because I thought I could do it on my own. And I didn't need these people to do the, the, the most common thing that I hear all the time. And I said to myself is, I'm different. I'm different. no no, 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 no. You're not different. You're the same as everybody else. These, these methods, when it comes to addiction, I I really feel are hand in glove because a lot of them are synonymous to getting people better. So it's just realizing like, not saying I'm not going to do this is saying like, these are the avenues of things that are going to help me. It's just about opening the possibilities. And that's really hard when you're trying to get clean from any addiction because Who wants to admit that they're wrong on something? So it's just about realizing these are the things that are going to make me feel better. So really, a lot of it comes down to self-awareness and just realizing, like, do I want to live the same type of lifestyle that I'm living now? If I keep living this lifestyle, where is it gonna take me? What's gonna happen? Am I going to lose my family? Am I gonna lose my friends? Do I have a girlfriend or boyfriend? Am I gonna lose them? Like what are the actions that are gonna happen if I keep on this same trajectory that my life is going? Maybe I'm gonna to go to jail. Maybe even worse, I'm going to die. So these are all things that people have to think about. But the worst part about it is and the saddest reality, because I have moms sometimes or dads come up to me, like after I give some of these talks, and they're like, you know, my son, my nephew whoever it may be is a drug addict. Like, what do I do? And like, they're kind of shocked by my response. Cause I say, there's nothing you can do because at the end of the day, the power lies mm-hmm. in the attic. If they do not want to get mm-hmm. clean or quit what they're doing, they're not going to do it. I have a very good family. Um, they're very loving. They're supporting. They had my back through a lot of things. They dealt with more shit than they should have. And that may, be, may have been a detriment to my, my addiction and prolonged it. I'm not going to put that responsibility on them, but it's on me. But it does not matter. It, addiction do, doesn't discriminate. At the end of the day, nobody's going to get better unless they want to get better. They have to have that aha moment. You, know, you referenced uh, rock bottom at the very start of this podcast. And rock bottom is a funny thing because when you think you hit rock bottom, there is still a lower low to go you know, I was in a psychiatric center Mm. three times, three times before I went to uh, jail. And one of those, my family sent me there. And the other two, I just went there because I knew I had no money and I knew I could go stay there for free until I got a new game Mm. plan until I got out. So like, and I remember calling my dad in there (laughs) and I would call him and I'd be like, yeah, dad, I'm here again. He's like, well, Alex, and you always tell me the same thing. He's same thing. He's like, well, You're at rock bottom. There's only one place to go from here is up. It's no, because I could go a little lower, which I did. I got out. I'd steal more money. I'd catch another charge. like, well, here we are again, you know? So like, I just kept diving myself lower and lower, but it's about finding that rock bottom that, that really snaps you out of it. And, uh, that's, that's it. And I found my rock bottom that snapped me out of it. And it was just up from there. Hey, it's Mitch. Thank you for listening to the super
1: more bros podcast. If you are loving this episode and receiving value from it, please rate or review the podcast as it will help us reach more people. Matt and I appreciate it so much. Now let's get back to it.
2: I have a a couple different points to make here, dude. From just the things you're saying now, you seem like you are super accountable for everything. You're like, I will not put that responsibility on my family. That guy definitely should have pressed charges against me. Everything you're speaking of now, you seem just super, uh, you're no longer a victim. Like you're like, I'm responsible for everything that's happened to me. Can you speak to that mindset?
0: Yeah, it takes a long time to cultivate. For me, at least, it took a long time to cultivate because I used to be that person, especially in drug addiction, where I love to point the finger. I'm this way because my parents got divorced. I'm this way because like, my family is poor growing. I'm this, you know, and it's easy to do that. And yeah, it feels good in the moment. But the thing about that feeling good in the moment is it feels worse as time goes on because you condition yourself to always say, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's almost like the same type. And I've worked with a lot of these people who say, hey, hey, Mark, will you go do this? Well, that's not my job. I hate those people. Those people are the worst. And I thought about that. That's like literally the connection I made in my mind. I was like, is that who I want to be? But I think the even bigger thing about that and how I kind of got to this conclusion was, I don't even know what year it was, maybe like one or two years into, into being clean And I was just like, you know, I started connecting a lot of dots because there's been a lot of times I should have been dead. There's been a lot of times that I've tried to take my own life. There's been some car accidents I've been in that I haven't died. Um, And I I was just really perplexed by all this, you know, and this is at a time period where I was really trying to understand God because I didn't really understand. And I still don't. Um, But I was really trying to get into religion I thought that was going to be like the next door I was supposed to go through. And I was really, really trying. Like I was trying to push myself through that door. And um, I started connecting all these dots. I'm like, there has to be a God because like all these things happened in my life and got me here. Like there's so many times I should have been dead. There's so many times like these situations should have turned a different way, but they didn't. And here I am. And I started thinking about all the lessons that I got out of those experiences. And I was like, wow. Like, it's almost like my life is being conditioned to what's next. That's what I really thought. I'm like, holy shit. Because like going to jail and going to rehab, like that was the worst experience of my life. And like the past four, five years since I got out of rehab, like they've been great, but they haven't been that great. Like there's been a lot of shit that hasn't gone right, you know, and and especially like right now, present day, am I where I want to be in life? No, but am I that upset about it? no, because like, I'm like, well, like I was in a real worse position and now I'm working to get in a better position. So like all those bad experiences conditioned me to where I'm at now to not give a shit because why give a shit about these little things? Because at the end of the day, a lot of the things that I want in life or out of life are materialistic. And I'm like, well, that's silly. You know, like, why do I care that? So I don't have my license right now. I'm like, do I care? And one thing that got me hung up was like, I see all my kids around my age they have like these brand new trucks and cars and it makes me feel some type of way. And I'm like, do I care about, they have a new truck? Like how do they feel mentally, physically, spiritually, maybe not as good as me, maybe better. I don't know, but why do I care? So like just being accountable to like my actions and myself, I'm like, it's something again, it's like a snowball. It kind of rolled because over time it just got to be second nature. It's like, why blame somebody else for something that i had a hand in and it just became second nature to just take accountability for my own life and even more so than that i would attribute that to how good i feel today because it's not blaming somebody else and putting that bad energy out into the world it's just like i did this whatever yeah. mm. my my up
2: i want to uh, touch on the lessons that god was teaching you because i think that's incredible that you came to this realization and with those lessons, ultimately we know where you're at now. You know we know you're coaching other people, you're helping other people to overcome addiction and just be a better, better version of themselves. So you've utilized those lessons to, I believe, do what God placed you here to do, and that's to serve others, man. Um, and I know that everyone is out seeking purpose. Like uh, people feel purposeless, purposeless, purposeless. And I have directly tied purpose to service. Like if you're not serving other people and helping other people, you're not going to feel purpose. Um, But where I'm going with this, because I I have an interesting kind of tie to this point is, and it goes back to when you talked about going to Narcotics Anonymous, going to that, you said the people are what helped you the most. So... How has how have those people and these lessons that God taught you equipped you today to do what you're trying to do on this mission of helping other people?
0: I'm much more understanding. Uh, before I – so how does the saying go? There's a saying in Narcotics Anonymous or maybe it's my buddy Todd told me in rehab and he's like, you know – There's a lot of gifts that you get in the world sometimes, but you don't accept them because you don't like the paper they're wrapped in. And I thought about that Mm -hmm. and I'm like, ah, you're right. And what I mean more so about that is sometimes I judge a lot of people by their appearances. So of course everybody judges, but sometimes they like really – me, for instance, really let it overcome some. So say, Matt, you came up to me and you just look disheveled. You look like shit you had not nice clothes, you were un ungroomed, all this stuff, I would instantly, instantly discount anything you had to say to me. You could have the cure to cancer and I would not give a shit because of how your appearance is. So like something as like shallow as that. And I thought about that a lot in life as like I wouldn't listen to some people or I would be instantly a little uh standoffish or rude to them just because of how they looked or maybe something they said to me. And I really thought about that. I'm like, is that really how I want to dictate my life? Some of the most amazing people I've, and even more so than that, actually, before I make my other point is like, it made me understand what people are going through. There's a story one time that I heard in NA and it really it really touched on a perspective. It's a story about a guy. It's a dad. A dad gets into a subway with his four kids. Four kids are running the muck on the subway. They're going crazy. They're playing. They're having a good time. And There's this gentleman sitting across from him. And he's like, really annoyed because he just got out of work and all these kids are running like crazy yelling screaming, and having a good time and the dad the guy goes over to the dad and he says hey sir can you please take a hold of your kids here they're going crazy on this freaking train And the dad says you know i'm sorry we just been in the hospital for three days their mother just passed away from cancer and in that moment that guy's like oh oh and he sat back down and i think about that story a lot because what it signifies to me is You don't always realize what some people are going through in their life. You have no idea what people are going through. So I think about that sometimes. So I still work in the service industry as a bartender, waiter. There's a lot of people who come in, they're rude as hell. Or in life in general, there's people who are just rude, they're standoffish, they're not very nice, they just look ignorant. And I always think about those people because whereas before I would just be, screw you, piss off, today I'm like, I wonder what they're going through. I wonder what's going on in their life. Like, I wonder what has happened to them that made them the way they are today. I truly believe that people are inherently good. I really, really believe that nobody wants to be bad. It's just life circumstances gets you into a ditch. So what happened to you that got you to this point? And will me being a dick to you too further that? Like, will that help you? No. So like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's that old cliche, kill them with kindness. So like, that is just where I'm at today. Like I always try to think about that. It's just like, I don't know. I try to I try to put more good in the world than bad. Um, I've had a shitty life circumstances, not only addiction, some other things that happened, some that we didn't touch on in the middle of my addiction. I lost my stepmother and my brother to a house fire. That was like at the height of my addiction. And that happened too. So that only further expedited my drug addiction. So like losing those people and like feeling like God was trying to really punish me and my family for life. And thinking about that and like coming out of that circumstance now, and that's been, that was in 2016. So that was six years ago, um, almost seven here in January 7th, January 7th, 27th, uh, 2023 will be seven years. But like thinking about that, yeah, like I'm sad about it. It's unfortunate. But like it taught that, that one horrible instance taught me so much about life and just like paying it forward because nobody knows how long they're going to be here. So why not put as much good into the world? Because that shit is infectious. Like if I, I like to go to the coffee shop all the time. And sometimes like do like these real uh, random acts of kindness. And it's like, I don't want anybody to give me praise for it. I even tell the lady, like, don't tell anybody I did this. And like, if I can just ha- make one person happy, that person goes out and makes another person happy, who makes another person happy, who makes another person happy. And you can see where that's going. That's going to be a big web of, these little things. Sometimes you don't know what these little things can do for people. It's the littlest thing sometimes. And it's just, it's amazing to do because why, I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'm at a point in my life where I'm just so extremely grateful to be alive that I just want to put as much good energy out in the world that I can.
2: To add to that point of happiness, dude, I found that when you be that light for someone else, that's ultimately when you're the happiest. Like when you yeah. just go do that random act of kindness, they don't need to know, they need to know, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. That's when you're the happiest, when you're serving other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, to touch on these points of when someone is needing help, because earlier you said it's okay to say, I need help. Mm-hmm. So if there's someone maybe listening to this, I got kind of a two-parter. If there's someone listening to this and saying, I need help. How do they go about receiving that help or going to other people without seeming so vulnerable? Because I feel like people, you know, as men, we have these egos and reaching out to other guys and saying, here's what I'm struggling with. That's super fucking hard. So being in the positions you've been in and now you're helping people who people come to you and literally say, I need help. How can they do that? I mean, how do they equip
0: themselves to be able to go and say, I need help? I think it's worse for men, especially just for the points that you touched on where we don't, we're men. We don't want to feel like we need help. We want to feel like we can do things on our own. And and, and I feel like men are worse at doing this than women are. But I will say that you need to, your mind is going to tell you a billion things as to why you shouldn't do something. So in this instance, like say it's me that needs help and I want to reach out to Matt for help. Before I reach out to Matt, there is going to be 100 excuses that I tell myself why I shouldn't reach out to Matt. Oh, he's got too much shit going on. Oh, he's got this. Like, he doesn't want to hear about my problems. I should just do this on my own. Like, he, he doesn't need this. It's not his responsibility. These are like the most common things. Like, you're going to tell yourself a billion things when at the end of the day, all you should do is pick up the phone and dial it. You know, in NA, they call it the the thousand pound phone because sometimes that that's can what it can feel like for any, like calling anybody for help. It doesn't even have to be addiction. Like you don't want to call anybody and ask them for help because you don't want to be a burden. You know, I always told people in NA, and especially the speeches that I give to around, like you make, you call me and I'm making you feel better, but little do you know, I'm feeling a hundred times better than you are because of helping you. It, it kind of goes back to that point that you just said, like, mm. you're giving that light to somebody, mm. but you actually feel better. Like, when somebody called me in NA and they needed help and they were just distraught, we talked for an hour, two hours, and, like, they get off the phone be like, I feel so much better. And I'm like, dude, you don't know how much life you infused into me for being able to help you. Like, I feel so good now. That's why it's such a common misconception when people are like, I don't want to call him. I don't want to be a burden. Most people will love, love to help you out and being able to put you on the right track. There's no better feeling in the world to me than being able to help somebody else. What I would say to those people, if they're feeling vulnerable, is like you need to find somebody that you're close to. Um, again, don't think too much about this. Think about your best friend. He's your best friend for a reason. If he says he's your best friend, he probably is. Call him. Do not think much about it call him if he wants the best for you but again there's a caveat to this if your best friend's doing the same thing that you're doing you probably shouldn't be calling your best friend about asking for help you should be calling somebody who is one <laughs> you're very you're very comfortable with and two you know is going to help you out so it's just about it the biggest thing is literally picking up that phone and making the necessary calls because one call could change your entire life somebody who is going to set that trajectory somewhere else but again i think the biggest problem with that again is just people they don't want to pick up the phone because they don't want to be a burden. I'm here to tell you, you're not the burden. You should make the call.
1: Amen. You're going to change the world, dude. You're you're going to absolutely change the world. Like God works through people, and He's definitely working through you. And there's just so many lessons that we can take away from your story of just like, um, you know, for one, like your mess, if you will, is, is what is allowing you now to have such a great impact on others because you can relate to them. You know, like when, like when people are thinking about what they can do to help others, add value to others, it's like, look back on your life and figure out what you have struggled with and what you have overcome. Use that story to relate to people who are in that position and allow, and then help them overcome it as well. And that, and that is where you can find that purpose, you know, that everybody seeks. is you know, we can serve the person that we once were. Um, it's just, man, there are so many lessons from, from your story that we could take away. Uh, and I think another one that I want to point out that it's kind of two, two questions ago now, but it's just like, when you take responsibility for the results that you're experiencing in your life, you're also taking back the power to create the change and create new results. Mm-hmm. Because when you blame other people or circumstances or just anything but yourself for the results that you're experiencing, you don't have the power to change it then because you can't mm-hmm. change anything outside of yourself. So like when you put it on other people, you give away the power to change it as well. So when you take that responsibility back, it's like now I have the power to mm-hmm. take action and create a new life for myself, new circumstances, new results, you know, whatever that may be. Um, so, man, there's just, <laughs> like I said, so many gems in, in what you have shared today. Um, just amazing. So we've talked a lot about the, the bad experiences and the bad things that you've been through. I want to talk about some wins, man. Uh, you know, where are you now? You said you're not where you want to be, but what, what is the goal for you? What does the future look like? What are you working towards currently?
0: Yeah, um, life is really funny. You know, I think the biggest, again, going back to my point earlier, you know, kind of like these doors closing and another one opens. It's a cliche as well, but it doesn't matter. Like, I've had so many, like, these good doors open these past few years that I thought were gonna be the doors that I was gonna go through ultimately, and they ended up closing on me. And of course, I was really upset about that because, you know, you think something's gonna work out and it doesn't work out, and you're like, well, shit, this sucks. But I always think about, and I I rewind and I just kind of play back to, like, the last 10 years of my life and all these situations that had happened that something didn't work out, but then something better came up. And I'm like, oh, this, this is just another instance of what's going on. So like, I don't get hung up on that anymore. I guess at the end of the day, it's just like, you know, I just want to be happy, healthy. I want to have my family, which I have, you know, my girlfriend and I are very serious, which is going well. Uh, we're talking about a family, which is even better. So like these little things and the grand scheme of things, like when I, when I get ungrateful, when I get unhappy about where I'm at in life, it can be boiled down to materialistic things like these things that I think I need in my life, but I really don't. So it's all about rebalancing Mm -hmm. and recentering myself. And journaling is really good for that for me, because I go in there sometimes, maybe I'm having a real shit day. And I just, the first two paragraphs will just be like, I'm grateful for dot, dot, dot. And I'll just go through that line. I'm grateful for this. And it really puts everything back into perspective because I realize like I'm exact, I have everything that I want in my life already and everything else that I add on to that is just going to be additive. Like all my base needs are met. So like everything else other than that doesn't really matter. You know, as of right now, um, finding Twitter was a huge bonus for me. Um, I came onto Twitter in 2020. Um, actually I made my public account in 2020. Um, I had a anon account prior to that I was a Bitcoin anon and, <laughs> you know, um, being anonymous on Twitter is really interesting because I I noticed myself getting into some toxic uh, traits and some toxic circles, and uh, as I'm sure you're aware with Mitch, you know, uh, kind of those Bitcoin or any crypto anons can be very very toxic, <laughs> and uh, I found my and I found myself being that for a little bit. Um, you know, I was just kind of shit posting on Twitter because I had no ramifications because no one knew it was me. Um, I remember seeing a, and I tell this story cause this is my introductory into like, I guess what you say, like our side of Twitter, money, Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Um, I seen a video, I think it was like April of 2020, Zach Homel in the back of his yard, drinking a cup of coffee talking about, I don't even remember what he's talking about, but I remember he made this video it was like the start of the mm-hmm. pandemic or some, and I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? And, but, I really liked what he said. I was like, "Wow, this makes a lot of sense." And then, like from him, I remember like you were one of the first people I followed Mitch. I followed you, Mike Dentonelli, I think I might have butchered his name um and a few other guys like it, it, the people in your circle, I started following all you people on my uh anon profile, and it came to a point where I'm like, I really want to start engaging with these people because I really like the the life that they're living like I think it's great, you know, like you guys were all into God and like working out and just getting better. And I'm like, I like all that. Like I want to do that too. So that's when I made my public account. And ever since then, I've just been kind of going off to the races and connecting with more and more people. And it's just been an amazing experience. You know, Um, I've coached some people as well, not only with fitness, with addiction, just I've talked to people on the phone, their life wasn't going that well. You know, the funny thing about Twitter is when I put my story out there in January of this year, last year, Um, I had dozens, dozens of DMS from people saying either a I'm going through this as well, or B, um, I have a friend or family member who's going through this. So like connecting Mm -hmm. with all those people and talking to them and just kind of trying to help them out or just say like, Hey, I'm here for you. I'm thinking about you, you know, like things like that has been immensely positive. Um, the biggest thing from Twitter thus far is like not taking it so serious, You know, at the start of the year, I thought the the Twitter journey was going to be my end all be all. I was putting a lot of energy and effort into making it be very, very successful. Um, There were times that it was, times that it wasn't. Um, The old saying, Rome wasn't built in a day, you know, like things take time. Um, So I kind of like the past Mm. few months, I've kind of scaled back from that and have not been putting as much prevalence on like Twitter success in terms of monetary but Twitter success in terms of like connections I've made. So if I, if I gauge mm-hmm. my uh, progress on that, like I'm beyond successful. Like I've, I've crushed my uh, imaginary revenue goals, you know? So like just kind of that shift in perspective because like Twitter is, any social media is as powerful as the user. Um, if you curate your feed like a dummy and have a bunch of toxic shit on there, like you're probably not going to have a great mindset. If you curate your feed with a bunch of people who are doing positive things that you yourself want to do, like you're going to have a positive experience. And that is what I've done. Like just curated this feed of individuals who are trying to get better in their life in all aspects, whether that be money, religion, uh, finances, uh, anything. So, you know, it's been a ride and a ride that I'm grateful for, but, uh, I'm excited to see what the future holds. I don't even know exactly what I want to do in the future moving forward. I'm just kind of going with the flow. I'm really enjoying life and what I'm doing right now. So I feel like, uh, it's funny. Sometimes people say like, Oh, you got a niche down on Twitter. It's just like, or maybe you just need to find your niche. It's just like, I'm just going to post and be me. And then if I can, if I can add to value to whatever conversation or whatever it is, like I'm going to insert myself there and see what happens But. uh it's been a ride, man. It's been really enjoyable, and I'm excited to see where the the next six months, the next twelve months, the next the future goes. Because again, uh, I've made great connections on here with great people.
2: Yeah, story I'm excited. Is incredible, that. dude. But and it's it's crazy how powerful social media can be. Truly, I mean, you're you're showing it right there with everything. But I did have a second part to my question. Somehow I got cut out, and then I come back in <laughs> to you guys just absolutely dropping heat. But you kind of played right into my second question with you saying you put your story out there and got dozens and dozens of DMs. So my question, my second part of that question was, you know, my first part was how can people reach out and say, I need help and feel comfortable doing that? My second part, because I know we have a bunch of leaders on here, a bunch of people sharing that are listening to this, a bunch of people who are sharing their message on social media, trying to help other people. How can they, you called it the thousand pound phone. How can they make that phone feel lighter to other people? How can they lower those barriers for other people so that people who are on the other side of saying, I need help, can see, like, I I can reach out to this guy. I can share and be vulnerable with this guy. How can those people that are trying to help other people make that phone ultimately feel lighter?
0: So a big thing with that as well, and of course, this is situational, depending upon what is going on and like what the situation is. I'm going to speak at it through a addiction perspective. Um, Again, I go back to Todd when I speak about addiction a lot because Todd from rehab, dude. um, And the sad thing is I don't know where he's at in life. I tried to reach out to him about six months ago and he's kind of under the radar, which is never a good thing. So if Todd, maybe at the long chance that you hear this, I miss you, brother. I hope you hear this. But anyway, what he always said when we had groups is it's a funny thing. So you get about 20 guys in a long-term rehabilitation group and like we'd be talking about addiction. We'd have a topic and they'd open the group for open discussion, no one would say a word, no one would say a word. Or if they did say a word, it'd be like, really, I don't want to say superficial things, but it's like the typical, like, well, you know, I hope you're doing better this, that, you know, like these, these really easy things to say. Todd always said, you know, if somebody comes out there and shares something really heavy, it's going to give somebody else the power to share something heavy. And that's how it goes. So if I come out, so say in your instance, Matt, this uh, situation of a leader trying to feel more vulnerable, you share something with your subordinates that is vulnerable to you, whatever it may be. You're like, maybe you're working on a project. You're like, you know, I didn't have as much confidence in that as I did. I felt this type of way about this. Like say what you really felt, because at the end of the day, who's going to want to share somebody, share something with somebody who is always seems like they have their shit together. You're going to be like, well, I don't want to share this to Matt because he's got his shit together. Like he's really confident. He's not going to want to hear about my problems and it's going to make me feel some type of way. Cause I'm like, I'm not on his level and I don't want to feel even worse by sharing something with somebody who's on a way different level. So being vulnerable and being like, you know, like, I don't have my shit together all the time can do immense wonders for somebody sharing something to you because they realize like, oh my God, this person is a person too. They have problems too. You know, it's like the fallacy of social media because, you know, anybody can put anything on social media. It's really funny sometimes, too, because like on Instagram or Facebook, you'll see these couples and they'll post all these nice pictures and they're, they're on a date and they're all smiling. It's nice. They give you like five or six photos. You're like, hold the fuck on. I know you in real life. You're not this happy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's like it's, it's like what are you talking about? But you can be anything you want to be on social media and that's the same thing in real life. How somebody perceives you is going to be how much they want to tell you. So if you don't ever share any of your problems, your struggles, your hardships with them, why would they ever want to share anything with you because they don't feel like you could relate. But if you act like a human being and be like, you know one like I, this I don't feel good today. You know, like this shit's going on. Like you don't have to get ultra personal, but you just also have to share, like I'm vulnerable sometimes too. Like, and again, this comes down to men as well, because men are the worst at this, because like, we're all in like this competition, whether we know it or not, it's like a pecking order, a hierarchy of life where we want to be the top dog. And it is seemed not masculine to share these vulnerabilities. It's just like, that's silly. You know, I, I feel like the most masculine people share these vulnerabilities of how like they have struggles, they have hardships, they deal with mental health, whatever it may be. I I respect people more when they show me that side of them because I'm like, oh, and that gives, and that also gives me the opportunity to relate to these people, whereas I didn't think I related to them before. So I would just say, try to be vulnerable more, share share more about the circumstances. And again, this is situational, like, Somebody in in a, in a corporate office isn't going to say like, oh, my marriage is going to shit. Like, yeah, like not like that, but like sharing vulnerabilities that are situa- situationally based that are going to make sense in the time to show that person like, hey, we're on the same level. Because again, a, a common response to this is like, yeah, call me anytime. Like people say that all the time, but they really mean it sometimes. I would argue that not saying call me anytime isn't as powerful as sharing with somebody that you struggle with the same thing that they do at times.
2: Hmm. I love that, dude. I mean, I think to highlight the whole thing is in that group you were talking about, share something heavy is going to give other people the power to share something heavy. So you've obviously shared your struggles and been super vulnerable on this podcast, dude. If someone is looking to reach out to you to share their struggles or connect with you in any way, how do you want them to do that?
0: I, uh, the biggest and really the only platform I'm on social media wise is Twitter. I love Twitter. I think it is one of the most powerful social medias out there and it happens to be the one I enjoy the most. Um, you can find me at Alex W. Cherry. Um, I'm always there. I answer all DMS that I can. If they're not stupid, don't send me just, Hey, I'm definitely not going to answer. That. <laughs> but, uh, anything else, you know what I mean? I love, I love talking to people. I love reaching out. I love hearing people's stories and what they're going through. And, uh, it's really interesting, man. Um, the most powerful feature of Twitter is the DMS. Um, I've met some of the most amazing people. I've got some of the most amazing guests from my own podcast through DMS. Like it's amazing. Um, do not let follower count fool you. Um, You can DM really anybody, you know, followers. People are just people on the other end of those uh, social media profiles. Took me a little bit to realize that, you know, you get a follower count. You see somebody has 20, 30, 40, 60 plus thousand followers. Like, oh, they're not going to want to talk to me. Throw them a DM. You know what I mean? It's, It's really interesting. The conversations that open up from these things, because, again, it's just a human being on the other end of that line.
1: Absolutely, yeah. If you are thinking about it, absolutely reach out to Alex. And before we wrap up, though, I, I want to talk a little bit about the health and fitness side of what you're doing, man. I mean, you posted a picture the other day. You're looking fucking lean and mean, bro. Like, what is your what does your week look like? You know, what you mentioned the red light therapy, um, you know, this morning. Uh, and I say a week because we don't do the same things every day. You know, you may train mm-hmm. like three or four times a week, or you know, whatever. What does a typical week look like for you uh, as far as training and nutrition goes?
0: So I'm going to finish out two more weeks of my push pull legs right now. I run a push pull legs A and B. That's about it. Um, I'm currently shifting my goals a little bit, which is why I'm going to finish out the two weeks of this this program block that I have in there. I recently ran in a Spartan 5K stadium race here in September, September 16th, and um, that's the first time I've ever competed in an endurance race, and it was absolutely amazing. It was addicting. And now I want to do more. And the two individuals that I did it with also want to do more. So next year, um, I'm really uh, going to gear up to do some more endurance training. There is nothing like competition. It really brought something out of me because, uh, again, I always played basketball in high school, high school competitively. I've always been a very athletic person. I love sports. I love the mindset that it brings out of me because it's truly powerful. And, and the people who have never played sports before are truly missing out on the things that it unlocks in you. Um, so next year I have a lot of goals where I'm going to run a 5k, a 10k and a 50k all Spartan races that my friends and I are going to do. And I'm also planning on doing an Ironman 70.3 that is going to be in Pennsylvania here in July. So like, those are like the four big goals that I have for myself next year. And I'm going to start tailoring my training to do just that. As of now, like what I've been doing the past few months is I like to lift heavy. Everybody has different goals in the gym. Um, you know, I enjoy to lift heavy weights. That's what I enjoy to do. I like to feel my best. I like to go in there, lift as much weight as I possibly can. And sometimes feel like I can't walk up the steps to get out of the gym. Sometimes that's how I know like life <laughs> is really good. That's what makes me feel good. So uh, I do that uh, I'm in the gym about four times a week. I try not to push over four times a week because I'm also doing cardio and stuff as well. I was in this time period a few years ago where I was lifting six days a week and uh, I was always just feeling out of gas. I just did not feel very good. I, I always equated training to more is better, but I guess it took me a little bit to realize like more isn't always better. So I've just tailored my training and that, and that comes to the aspect of you live and you learn. Um, so I love lifting weights, but more so than that, I've been getting into the recovery protocols a lot more about how to feel better after the gym, how to feel better cognitively the next day. So like, I've been really diving into more stretching protocols. Yoga has been a huge thing. Uh, shout out Tyler. I had him on my podcast. I butcher his last name, Flegebo. I fuck that up, but you might know who I'm talking about from Arizona. Great dude. He has a great uh, yep. free uh, free resource about stretching. I got that. So I've been stretching a lot more. I love doing ice baths. That's been something in the past Two and a half and a half years that i've been doing a lot more of so i try to do that do that about two times a week uh sauna is absolutely amazing for me as well i do that about four times a week so like all these little things outside of the gym that i can do to feel my absolute best and it translates because uh you know i did uh, really well in that spartan race with very minimal training i only had about three weeks to prepare for that and i i my statistics were very good for my age range and everything and that was another boost to say like What would happen if I really put my all into training these next few months? What can I do? So setting goals for myself for these next few races of like getting in the top 10 of things is like really a good motivator for me to be like, let's push myself a little bit harder. But uh, my training has evolved a lot. But the biggest thing is that it is my new antidepressant. That's why I like to tell people, you know, I I quit doing pills, uh, antidepressant pills and antipsychotics. And I traded it out for the natural remedy is that's lifting weights and just feeling better because the days that I don't exercise or I don't do anything are the days that I feel like I want to die. So that's, that's what I do to feel better without lifting weights. I would, I don't know what I'd do, man. It'd be a horrible thing. It'd be a horrible thing, but training <laughs> is, uh, is, it's funny how training evolves over time, man, but I'm, I'm happy with, with where mine's at.
1: Yeah, dude. I mean, it seems to be working very well for you. So I would, I'd say don't change anything. Keep rocking. I love the goals that you have in place with the Spartan Spartan races and even jumping into the Ironman stuff, man. That, that's way more than I want to bite off right now uh, with endurance training. I, I'll, I'll stick to stick to lifting for now. So you can have that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's really funny because it's, it's something that that your uh your mindset right there on that is the same one that i've had for two and a half years you know i have a, a few sisters but my one sister specifically has always been a runner she ran cross country in high school ran cross country at a d1 school in college and now she does marathons <clears throat> and she's always been dispersed she's like alex you need to get into endurance running you need to get into running i'm like fuck that i just like to lift weights and that's how i always <laughs> was like i was like i don't want to run and then out of a whim, my buddy said, do you want to do the Spartan 5k? And I'm like, no, but I will. You know what I mean? It didn't sound fun. And then I did it and I'm like, shit, there is something powerful. Like I don't really like running. Even when I was training beforehand, like running a few miles, I'm like, I don't really like this. This isn't that enjoyable. Getting in a competition setting with a hundred people running beside you, something unlocked in me. Like I was like, wow, My cardio isn't this good when I run alone, but when I was running alongside all these people, like there was a fire inside of me that was like, let's go. And that brought out the competition side of me that pushed me through. And I'm like, wow, I really like this. So I don't know. uh, It's something I never thought I would like, but that brings me to a point where I say, never say never now. Like I try to never close off these opportunities I'm going to do in my life. I'm like, I don't want to say I'm never going to do this because I just don't know at this point in my life, like, again, I never thought three years ago, if you would have said like, I'm going to do all these endurance races next year, I would have said there's no effing way here I am today going to do this. So it's just really interesting how that transpires and how life kind of comes at you.
1: Yeah. I love it, dude. I love it. Keeping that open mind is important. So to wrap up, let's just, let's uh, leave it with this, man. What is one thing, uh, what is the number one recommendation that you would make for someone um you know who wants to get started
0: in their health and fitness journey just start do not overcomplicate everything um if you're like me you like to have a whole tailored plan before you jump into anything you like to have all your eyes dotted, your T's crossed, you want to have the whole game plan for the next 8 months plotted out what you're going to do fuck that throw it away Just start, whatever it may be, start moving around. Um, A lot of people, again, back to me, analysis paralysis. You are going to watch 20 YouTube videos, read 40 articles and do all this shit and be like, oh my gosh, maybe I'll do a push pull legs. Maybe I'll do a full body. Maybe I'll start running. Maybe I'll do this. It's like, no, you should just start. Figure out what works for you. Do not look to the person to your right and to your left and be like, well, I want to do exactly what they do to look like they do everybody is situationally based you need to do the best workout is the one that you enjoy doing and the one that you can stick to doing it's the same with nutrition do not try to follow anybody else try to find what works for you and go from there again just start at the end of the day the biggest hurdle you're going to do is is you're going to procrastinate your way out of not doing it because you're going to start out thinking I should do this that and the other and you're going to end the road of not going at all. So, if you are trying to start your health and wellness journey or any journey for that matter, you should just start and then do the research later.
2: Great answer, into that, man.
0: dude.
1: Yes. So, yeah. To wrap up, I mean, if what an incredible story, man! I just thank you for coming on, spending the time with us, sharing, being vulnerable, like you said, opening up, sharing your story, allowing others to be vulnerable with you. Um, just the the amount of lessons that could be taken away from what you have experienced and you know things that you have learned the hard way I guess is just numerous it's incredible to see where you are and and I'm so um, excited to see what your future holds dude I think I think there's a lot a lot more in store for you than you even think as of right now so uh, I just appreciate you coming on and sharing for those of you listening, thank you for listening this whole time. Um, if you got any value out of this, I don't know how you wouldn't, but share it with other people. You know, this his story will impact thousands, you know, millions of lives possibly. Um, so don't be afraid to share with somebody who you think could benefit from any point of this story. Uh, share, share it. Um, if you loved it, rate and review the show. My brother and I, Matt, appreciate that so much. The reviews go a long way. Um, and just spreading the word, getting it out to others. So thank you all for listening. We love you. Peace.